Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. This is the podcast where we examine estate planning, philanthropy, and family business planning questions in detail with top thought leaders, planners, authors, and professionals. Each week we examine a specific question framed as a what-if question that goes beyond the simple tactics and explores purpose and intentionality in your planning. I'm your host, Chris Delaney. I am the author of the strategic estate planning book, The Naked Opus, Growing Your Family Wealth for the Long Term. I am also a lawyer, family enterprise advisor, finance professor, and professional speaker. And the fact is, I really enjoy talking about estate planning, philanthropy, and family business succession. I want to thank the hundreds of listeners who've made making this show a success. Our audience is growing with every episode. This week's special guest is Mark Halpern. Mark is the founder of WealthInsurance.com. He's a certified financial planner, a member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, STEP, and a master financial advisor in philanthropy. Mark will be answering the question, what if I want to be philanthropic in my estate planning? And sharing his concept of the strategic use of the new philanthropy in estate planning. You will enjoy this conversation. Mark, it's great to have you here this week. Could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting into the, the professional space of strategic philanthropy? I was looking for an opportunity to uh, to really help people. I was big into doing a lot of charitable work and volunteering, etc. And uh, I was working in sports marketing. I actually worked for the National Hockey League at one point. Oh. And yeah, yeah, it was great. I was working in, in licensing and sponsorship here in, in Toronto. Yeah. And then I started to work for the agency that um, that actually ran the NHL account and then got hired by them. And then got hired to another agency and lost my job. And, and, and unfortunately, we lost a couple of clients. And I found myself in a situation where I realized I didn't want to work for anybody again, you know, and I really made a concerted effort at that point to become sort of self-employed and, and really, you know, have control over my future. And I got into the insurance business, particularly back in 1991. Uh, but my real start, uh, Chris, was actually in 1974, which is 46 years ago. And, that, and that's when my father of blessed memory died of a heart attack at the age of 50. Um, I was 11, and I was the youngest of four boys. And my mother, who was 48 at the time, had to go back to work to support our family. And the reason she had to do that is because my father was a, a busy engineer and really hadn't done any planning. There was very little savings. There was no will and there was no life insurance. So it was really very difficult for us growing up. We all managed, you know, thank God to become professionals. But fast forward, I work now with some of the wealthiest business owners and entrepreneurs in Canada and uh, professional athletes and, and affluent families. And you would think they'd have things organized in their life. But like my father, I would suggest over 80% don't have things so well put together. They may have started off with a, a particular financial architecture and furniture that fit into that. And now fast forward, that architecture is so completely different. The question is, does the furniture still fit? So I do three things. I do estate planning and I do tax minimization strategies using uh, tax exempt insurance. And I do philanthropy, helping people to create legacies often by converting taxes into charity. And as a, as a group, 
we we're very fortunate. I'm I'm the chair of a professional advisory committee for a foundation, a trustee. I'm on the Sick Kids Advisory Board, St. Joe's Hospital as well, and we uh, we work either with uh, donors or we work with donors from uh, nonprofits or we love educating allied professionals like lawyers and accountants and insurance people and investment people and bankers because ultimately they are the gatekeepers to their clients wealth and also to their legacy so unless they're talking about it unfortunately it often is an overlooked topic and there's clearly a great uh, loss by not having those conversations with our clients and our goal as a company every year is to create a hundred million dollars of new philanthropy in all three of those areas by either working with our clients or with nonprofit donors or by working with allied professionals so it's very very fulfilling well, and it, it's it's good that you uh, or, or appreciate that you highlight that that uh, you have these goals annually in philanthropy because the the question that we're sort of using as a as a guide for this particular episode is is what if I want to be philanthropic in in my estate planning and what um, I I have met clients over the years people over the years who can't quite differentiate between charitable giving and philanthropy. Is there a way that you could uh, distinguish between the two? Is it a mindset? Is it a process? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, to me, charity, it's like, it's nice to grow up. The, best, the most charitable people are the people who grew up in charitable families. Let's face it. You know, it's, it's kind of some DNA. And I grew up in a, you know, my mother, although she was, you know, working and she was also somebody who was constantly giving money to charities. Remember when the, you know, the daffodil campaign for, sure. for cancer. So my mother went out volunteering and, and, and we had piles and piles of requests for donations. I'm sure that many hit up my mother on multiple occasions, but she didn't know. She just kept writing checks and she'd have like two feet of these $5, you know, receipts. So we grew up with this idea of charity and that was more of an obligation, a social obligation. If you have something, if you have got good things, you, you need to share it. But it was charity that you gave out of sort of your cash flow. You know, it was for us, being Jewish, we have something called tzedakah. It's not charity. Tzedakah actually means righteousness or justice, like you, you have an obligation to give. But that would be giving a percentage or of, your, of your income. And, you know, in the world, we call it tithing, right? So you give to people that you're, you know, either ask you for something. Let's say they're going on a, they're doing a charitable raise for cancer. They're driving their bikes to bury or something, you know, or skipping rope for three hours or, or, or you give money to things that you're passionate about. It could be that you spent some time in a hospital or somebody did some kindness to you. So you want to give back or to an alma mater. So to me, that's charity. That's sort of giving out that money. But there are strategic ways, which is more around philanthropy. And, and that's about creating legacies. And the beautiful part, Chris, is you do not have to be Warren Buffett and you do not have to be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos to be a philanthropist. It's really recognizing that all of us have three possible beneficiaries to our estate. We have our family, we have the tax department, <laughs> and we have charities. And each of us can only pick two of those. Which two would you pick, Chris? 
Oh, well, I think you, uh, uh, you started with one and you ended with one. The one in the middle, I would want to minimize as much as I could. And that's, you know, obviously the less we pay to tax, uh, uh, overall, I think that's better. But I, I think there, there are, the nice thing about paying with, distributing that wealth to charities and to family is that I think we can achieve deeper goals with that. We're, we're, we're dealing more with things that are emotionally, uh, powerful and have a great deal of traction uh, on what we care about in the world. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, again, this definition of philanthropy or legacy or strategic philanthropy is really about making a difference, right? It's about creating something that goes beyond you and not just by giving you a check, you know, $10 a month to the Canadian Cancer Society, which of course is very important too. It's about recognizing that, you know, there instead of disinheriting your children, you can actually adopt another kid and your kids still get the same amount. And that adoption, of course, would be to, towards some charitable aspirations. And, and for me, I find that there are people who are, really do want to make a difference. Today, it's interesting, Chris, that the millennials, although they're kind of wired very differently, they, they have a desire to do something with meaning or social responsibility attached to it. That's why you see organizations like 10 Tree, Tom Shoes, people are willing to pay more than retail if there's a charitable aspiration attached to it. But getting back to our, our you know, three beneficiaries, I wish I could tell you, Chris, that people come to me and say, Mark, I want to give away $10 million. How do I do it? And who should I give it to? Now, we do have people who do approach us, but it's more like finding the money for our clients in order to be able to be generous where it doesn't impact their life. And, and that's where I find in my professional practice is that most people I meet have done investing, but they haven't done the planning. And planning is very different than investing. Planning is getting to a point in your life where you've accumulated assets. And now maybe you're going to start encroaching on some of that money or at least using it for your lifestyle. You know, my people that I meet largely, uh, unless they were to blow all their money on a penny stock or invest all their money in some very bad investment or, or start spending crazily, chances are they're going to have more money when they die than what they have today. Mm -hmm. So really they're sitting there as the custodian or trustee for the next generation, for their children and their grandchildren. But what they're unaware of is that they are partnering with the CRA with that money. So the planning is really making sure A, they have a check mark, they're never gonna run out of money, but also crystallizing what's their tax bill today and what's gonna be their tax bill when they leave this world. And the idea there is if they can now identify that, they can see that there's a bunch of never spend money that they're just paying taxes on that perhaps we can now tap into to either preserve their estate for their family or to create some exceptional charitable gifts. I was going to, I was just going to interject there. You know, it's interesting. You've mentioned planning quite a few times in that response. And, and, um, I think it's probably worthwhile for some of our listeners to kind of uh, define, if you will, I guess that's my lawyer background coming out. When you're saying planning, like uh, you started off by saying it's different than investing. What is the difference? Like I've, I have noticed over the years, 
just to, just to frame it a little bit um, that people don't like to do any planning. They don't want to talk about it. They, they, it's hard work. It requires a fair bit of uh, fair bit of thought about things that may not be pleasant. And I've always theorized that, that, I was partly crazy because I enjoyed planning not only for myself, but for other people <laughs> as well. So when you're talking about estate planning and, and in the context, say, of this show, where we're talking about estate planning and family business succession, for example, what is that in your mind? What are the tools of that? What are the processes of that? So, so there are, there are, I would say, um, psychological processes, and then there's practical, technical okay. things, right? And, and it's really wanting to understand from somebody, what would they like to see happen? You see, the reality is, Chris, we're, we're all going to die. Nobody's not part of the dyers club as much as we like to have our cognitive dissonance. And, and, and everybody's either going to die or they're going to get sick or they're going to live a very too long potentially, right? right? So we have to make sure that we address all of those things while the sun is shining. And Chris, it's never been easier to have this conversation with COVID. You know, in my world, I've never been so busy because it's taken a global plague to get people to realize that they could die one day or get sick. I've been trying to convince them for 30 years and most people don't believe me. Now, they're all aware of the fact that they have incompletions. They don't have a will or it's not up to date. They don't have an estate directory of where everything is. Where's the key to the safety deposit box? Their digital passwords. They have old insurance policies that haven't been reviewed because you know they, they don't have a relationship with anybody anymore. And then when it comes to you know their, their investments, they're, they've accumulated stuff, but they haven't done planning to sort of say, okay, here, I'm at a stage right now where I'm more focusing now on preserving what I have as opposed to accumulating. So preservation becomes very important. The second thing becomes, now we want to look at maximizing our income. So how do I maximize income given low interest rates, et cetera? And then also tax efficiency. Am I going to be giving up a lot of this money to taxes, how is it possible to keep more of it? So it really is a, a conversation from 30,000 feet up. Most of it has nothing to do with, with investing or insurance or whatever. It's really doing an inventory or crash test of your, your existing situation and finding out what you'd like to see happen. And the best time clearly to do this, Chris, is while the sun is shining. Absolutely. You know, we have yeah. more options and more flexibility, but you're right. People don't spend a lot. It's, it's kind of icky stuff. I don't want to talk about dying. I don't want to talk about getting sick. Uh, you know, I don't want to share this information with my children. You know, I want to maintain control forever. But, you know, if you had a choice to either have things laid out properly, you know, for your family and keeping, you know, the, the, the government at bay versus having the government involved in your family's life and taking anywhere between 27 and 55% of your money, I mean, what would you choose? So that requires giving it some attention. So that's kind of in a nutshell what that looks like. And, and, and there's no cookie cutter, Chris. I wish I could say there's, we're not here. There's not an instant coffee. Each situation is very unique. Each person is very unique. And that's why the psychological stuff, that soft stuff has to be spoken about. And then once you've done a proper diagnostics, then you can go ahead and, and provide the 
recommendations. You, you, you can't be a solution looking for a problem. And if you do that, if you give a prescription without the proper diagnostic, they call that malpractice, right? So right. there are a lot of people out there who are serving clients, but they're, let's say, they're, they're looking at one vertical and not at the big picture. So it's really incumbent on everybody, not just as a potential client, but as a professional as well, to know that you can't be all things to all people. We all have to be hyper-specialists, and then we have to co collaborate with other hyper-specialists who are independent as well, and really be able to look at a client in a very holistic way. Do you find that that's... Uh... Uh, so I, I did uh, a designation as a family enterprise advisor, and, and although I certainly believed in collaborating with other professional advisors in my work prior to obtaining that designation, that is a key aspect of that particular program is understanding how to work in a multidisciplinary team. Do you see that that is a... Um, I think that's something that people should look for is an ability of, with, of their advisor to do that. Uh, do you see, think that that's something that's going to be a trend going forward, particularly because you're working probably in a space where there's some people with some wealth. Is that something that's going to be a, a defining characteristic of this space going forward? Yeah, no question. I, I think there are going to be some, there are going to be a number of survivors of this new generation or this new reality. And I think there are going to be fatalities. You know, I think, you know, the future, there's going to be, uh, there's a lot of complexity. And as a result, the, the people, the problem solvers are going to be the ones to get through this. It's not the peddlers or the pushers of products or, you know, uh, you know, structures it's going to be the people who are doing the planning and and you can't do it alone it's not a business that you know you can be a, a lone wolf on and that's why we work with our clients professional advisors as a team or we'll tap into people that we uh, have relied on for a number of years from Bay Street to Main Street who would be appropriate for that particular client. And, uh, you know, it is a process. That's the key. People have to appreciate it's a process. It's not an event. And, and you do need a team in order to get this done. So ourselves, what we do is we just ask or we, we desire to be part of that team. We want to be at the table as the insurance specialist and on the philanthropy side, right? Because really our expertise is using tax-exempt insurance to create transformational gifts for our clients. Um, and, and I noticed, you know, in your, um, in your biography, I mean, your, uh, your uh, uh, professional designations speak to, I think, someone who's incredibly, you know, in addition to your, your vast experience, someone who's incredibly committed to the, the, the lateral, uh, uh, the addition of sort of lateral skill sets um, and different uh, skill platforms that you bring to it. Um, I, you know, I noticed you've got a TEP designation, which is a trust and estate professional. Um, and then you've got this, the, the CFP and the MFAP designation. And, and I know the, the people that have these designations are always modest about them, but I think they're important. Um, can you just share with our listeners what those two, uh, those two designations in particular add to your conversation as far as process with your clients, but um, just as importantly, um, how they inform the, the creation of philanthropic uh, uh, concepts in, in people's planning? 
And this is with regards to the CFP and the MFAP? Is that what yeah, you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So the CFP is, is really a, a fantastic designation to have because it's not specialized in one area. It's really about holistic, comprehensive planning, looking at things from 30,000 feet up. So again, it's all about proper gathering of information, creating a, a, a sort of a, a system in terms of finding out what somebody wants and almost like taking all of that and putting it into a sausage machine, Chris, you know, <laughs> and, and, and then coming out with, you know, here's an analysis of your situation. We want to make sure we haven't missed any ones in front of numbers or zeros at the back end. Right. And right. you get check mark, check mark, check mark, right. To make sure you're okay. And, um, and then going ahead and creating strategies to either preserve somebody's current situation or their estate um, or to enhance it or to look at risk mitigation. So I, I personally like the CFP and, and when I did do it, I think the CFP, all these designations are really not as much for our clients they're more for the advisor in the sense of really making a statement that I invest in my profession, I invest in my practice, and that gives me a certain amount of confidence over somebody who might not have that. Now, the MFAP, that's a kind of cool new designation that actually got started out of the CAGP, the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, and Knowledge Bureau, Spire uh, Philanthropy, and um, they wanted to create a designation that really uh, reflected an advisor's expertise in the area of strategic philanthropy. And I was fortunate enough that they tapped on me to be one of the faculty members. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, so I created a, a whole component there, including a, a webinar on, uh, on a strategy we created called CPP Philanthropy or Canada pension plan philanthropy, just a way of regular people taking their CPP and creating gifts of over a million dollars and you know, not paying taxes on their CPP. So that designation is new and it's really, it's going out there. And, and, and it's, and I think, again, it gives you a 30,000 foot look at uh, what uh, a person's situation is and what can be done. And most people today, Chris, uh, you know, they give their charity largely by, you know, writing a check, giving some cash or using a credit card. Am I making sense, Chris? I'm sure yeah, you, you, can relate, you can relate to that. It's but, a reaction rather <laughs> than a, a, a comprehensive plan. Right. But, but meanwhile, the government has introduced 25 pieces of different legislation since 1995 to make it easier to give money to charity and to be philanthropic. You know, for instance, what about, you know, donating um, sort of appreciated securities? Mm -hmm. Most people are not aware of that and not doing that. You know, you've got a, we've all got mutual funds or some stock or a segregated fund that if you've had it over the last 20 years, I mean, it's, it's multiplied considerably. Problem is when you sell it, you're going to pay capital gains taxes equating to about 27% of whatever the gain is, right? Mm -hmm. That includes uh, you know, investment real estate or private equity in a company, right? So the government allows you to take that stock or that mutual fund and donate it to a charity. And when you do that, you do not have to pay any capital gains taxes at all. And you get a full charitable receipt for the amount of the donation. And of course, 
you know, in terms of charity, that's like for every $2 you give to charity, you save a dollar a tax. So right. it's a very, very efficient way of being generous at a very, very inexpensive cost, right? That's called being a little smart about it. So that, those types of things, using um, CPP, as I mentioned, using appreciated stocks, or, or how about even just beneficiary designations on a, an RRSP or a RIF? If you're in Canada and you are fortunate to be married, well, then when you die, everything rolls over to your surviving spouse tax-free. But if you don't have a spouse, it's considered as if you sold everything when you died. And the government, in the case of RSPs and RIFs, they're going to want 54% of that money. So if you have a million dollars and you have kids, the government is going to take $540,000 and only leaving $460,000 to your children. Wouldn't you like to do some planning to be able to make it that the full million dollars goes to your kids or at least have it that the taxes go to your favorite charities as opposed to, to, the, to the CRA? I mean, this is all kind of just sort of doing the planning and looking at the big picture. And the last thing, of course, is utilizing tax-exempt insurance. You know, life insurance is, is really something that's so misunderstood in Canada. Most people look at it as a grudge purchase, like their car insurance or their house insurance. But people with wealth realize that it's a way of creating transformational philanthropy. And it could be as much as if, if you just have an insurance policy, an old insurance policy sitting around like we all do of maybe 50,000, 100, 250,000. Those policies can be donated during your lifetime where you could get a very, very large fair market value tax charitable receipt for the donation that saves you a whole bunch of money today. Now you're recognized for leaving this big plan gift, which the charities will recognize you for. And going forward, any of the premiums that you're going to pay are considered charitable donations. So you get a receipt for those as well to save you, save you taxes. So as you can see, there's a lot of shells to move around here, but it's really exciting because once you figure out how all those different pieces can fit together, you can do some amazing, amazing things for families. And, and you mentioned that I, I, people aren't doing this. Like, it, it sounds amazing. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense when you describe who the three possible beneficiaries of your ultimate estate can be, that you have this much ability to really, as you say, adopt another child, uh, and that child can be the charity. Why do you suppose it is that, uh, and, and we'll stay specific with, with Canadian listeners, there are more Canadians don't do this. So, for example, uh, donating uh, appreciated uh, publicly traded stock. What, what, what's the disconnect between something that is so clearly beneficial um, and actual execution? So, uh, I'll start from the top. Um, it, it's, it's really very simple. It's having the wisdom and knowledge to be able to make those choices, right? Uh, most yeah. professional advisors are also very busy, your accountant, your lawyer, they're busy and often they're very reactive as opposed to proactive. And even if they gave you advice, you might not listen to it, right? So it's, right. It, it, it's really ha being able to tap into that information. And, and um, unfortunately, that, that, so that's one thing, it's really about having the advice along the ways, but also the nonprofits, the charities are also busy trying to get money to keep the lights on, you know, to keep all the, the balls in the air. And even they are often shortchanged in terms of staff or resources 
or information to be able to have this con this dialogue with donors that perhaps there's a better way for you to give. And, and I'm talking, Chris, I've worked with dozens and dozens of charities, some of the names that you would just think, you know, for sure they have this in place, but that donation of appreciated securities still only represents a tiny little fraction. I've never seen more than 5% of fundraising fun, funds that are being raised in these big charities coming from that, right? So I really think it's, it's really contingent on the advisors becoming more knowledgeable because ultimately they are the gatekeepers. And I'm talking about the people on the investment side, the insurance people, the lawyers, the accountants, and, or not having to necessarily learn about it, what about just collaborating with somebody else, finding somebody sure. else who does understand that and working together? We work a lot in collaboration with professionals and, and they don't see us as a, as, a, as a threat because we're not necessarily selling anything. We're, in, my, in my world, look at, I, I see that giving charity, I can do it two ways. I can either write a check myself, Chris, mm -hmm. or I can encourage other people to write checks. And I can raise way more money doing that than me writing a check. So I feel very blessed that I have a sort of an attachment to these strategies and ideas and, and just would like much, much more of this information to become really not known in all the homes across the country, certainly at the higher end as well. But it can be, as I said, you don't have to be Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett to be a philanthropist, but I think that's it. And, and we're living in a time of just so much information. It's like, how do you get reliable information? We're going to the internet for it. And, and people are trying to, you know, you have robo advisors. You still need to sit down with somebody and have this explained to them. Otherwise, you know, unfortunately, there's a, a great opportunity that's lost, not just for the charities, but certainly for the, the donors and, uh, and, and wealthy Canadians as well. So if someone's listening to this, uh, and, and, and lots of people do, so uh, hopefully someone's listening to this uh, podcast when it's released and they're thinking, I'd really like to, to get started on this. You know, it's been, a, it's been in the back of my head. I'd like to do some philanthropic planning. I think I understand a little bit more about it now versus, say, the re, more reactive, just giving at the door and things like that. I'd like to build that legacy part of it. Um, where's the good spot for them to begin? Like, it's, I've contextualized it as, what if I want to be philanthropic in my estate planning? And many people... Uh, immediately, as soon as you say estate planning, they think of a lawyer, and that's not an unjustified place to start. But um, uh, you've also described, you know, sort of the the holistic mindset that uh, someone with a CFP designation or somebody with the MFAP uh, might have to even start to look at building processes and and helping the client get from a mindset of of accumulating to a mindset of preserving and distributing? Where, where should they begin? What's, what's their starting point? Ah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, they can call us and they can, <laughs> and they can send me an email to mark at wealthinsurance.com. We'll be happy to help them or to direct them to people across the country that we're engaged with that, you know, by all means, come to our, we our website and, and see a whole bunch of case studies of people who might be in similar situations. So that would be great. But uh, I think really it, it's a matter of realizing that you, you may have crossed over from a, an accumulator of investments or appreciation of your investments, where now you want to go from success 
to significance, right? There's a big difference. So if you want to go to significance, that requires a different mindset and a different form of planning. I guess the first place to really go to is really to your accountant. It seems like, you know, your accountant, accountants generally have a very close relationship with their clients. Um, and sometimes even more so, the person who invests your money has a, uh, an appreciation or a closeness to you much more than your accountant, or it could be to your insurance professional, or it could be to your banker. I mean, look at, there are a lot of people who are out there who, um, who can certainly help. Whether they have the expertise in this area of the holistic planning or the philanthropic planning, that I can't know for sure, right? Clearly, I can't know for sure on that, but I will say that we do meet people who have very, very good advisors, but you know, perhaps they've, they are not experts in this area. So it really is about finding another member of the team to help with this. And you know, that most, most of the people we're meeting with have other advisors already, but they're not necessarily getting this type of insider information. The other thing they can do is I'm, I write for a publication called The Tax Letter. It's a subscription publication that's been around for about 40 years. And I write monthly. As a matter of fact, this month is our 90th, 90th publication. Oh. So we have, a, we have a huge digest of tax letter articles that we're very happy to give to your listeners, uh, complimentary. And, and they all deal with this topic that we are going through today. So it goes through, you know, in a very simple layman's terms, an understanding of people's situation if you're in business or you're looking at estate planning or post-mortem planning or philanthropy and, and helps to understand what the end result is, like what things do as opposed to what they are so that you have a vision of where you want to go. Now it's just a question of, of sort of moving things around to get there based on your particular, you know, unique set of circumstances. So I think that would be a great way to, to go about it. And certainly listening to you, Chris, and this, this podcast is a great way to go get going too, because it's, it's just about taking the time, investing the time to find out now, as we said, while the sun is shining. Uh, unfortunately, as, as we say, things can change in a moment and then there are far less options available. So uh, please reach out. We'd be very happy to help people get, find the right address to help them with what they need. Well, that's very, very generous of you. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it, and you mentioned it uh, just to kind of bring something you've already mentioned into that, uh, into that framework, this type of planning and estate planning generally, it's not an event. It's not something you should look at as uh, ticking a box. It's a process. And, and um, having a Sherpa like yourself who can, who can bring people along that pathway um, is absolutely critical. So, you know, I would add to the, the steps that you added there that they should be people listening who are looking to go down this pathway should be reaching out to, to hold someone's hand because there are people out there that will, will help them with this and who have networks of allied professionals who can help them with this. The, the, the work is out there. You know, the help is out there. I should say, I, I went to your uh, website earlier and, uh, there's some great information there and I, and you've got a business succession checklist, which is near and dear to my heart. And I noticed, you know, you've got all these questions at the beginning and it's interesting that in your checklist, you, under one section, you highlight things like family priorities, such as harmony, equality, fairness, and then personal priorities that are very, uh, goals based, you know, a comfortable retirement income, minimizing taxes. Um, 
how does that thinking of your your wealth transition in that context is a shift in mindset how do you take your clients through that so that they're ready to begin this journey of strategic philanthropy can, can you just give a, a little example of what that might look like as opposed to what it might normally look like when somebody wants to do it yeah well look at you, you've got the fea degree i'm jealous of you for that i know how hard that <laughs> how hard that was but it's it's definitely on my on my list of things to do um i would say that there are a lot of families that have a lot of wealth and as a result wealth brings complexity and and one of the biggest areas of complexity or one of the largest assets that a lot of families have could be a business there could be, you know, there's there's private equity and they built that up and that's really been the cow, you know, that's been generating all the milk all the way along. And and it's not unreasonable for me to find a situation where mom and dad started a very successful enterprise and son is involved in the business and two sisters are not involved in the business. And mom and dad, you know, they're really about doing things, you know, they want to be equal, right? And there's a big difference between being equal and fair. Is it really right that son who's built up the business should upon the passing of mom and dad suddenly become a minority shareholder of a business that he's built and having two sisters sitting there with their hands sticking out, waiting for their dividend check every quarter and relying on son to really be the bank, so to speak, or brother uh, to, to look after them and their families. That, that situation, Chris, is so common out there, right? So right. wouldn't it be more beneficial to structure things in such a way that, A, you don't have to have a fire sale of a business to create taxes, or B, that you are setting things up where everybody gets their piece, but it allows for the, 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 the flow or the, so the, the transmission from one generation to another where a business can be maintained with, with harmony, where there's not sort of that infighting, et cetera. And then with that, what we find as far as the philanthropy side of it, and where does this fall in, is that um, the families, you know, they say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Chris. And, yeah. and that's famous. And that's when the weather conditions are perfect. But if it's windy outside, the apple falls far away from the tree. And if there is a tsunami, like there is today in terms of, you know, digital and families, and what, the apple doesn't even know it comes from a tree, right? <laughs> so, so where we see there, there are two ways that we see uh, families creating those values and those ethics and those morals and those really that, that, that responsibility going forward. Often it's either through religion or it's through philanthropy. Philanthropy is a way of creating um, a model to continue or even to start that whole discussion around values and morals, especially for our grandkids, let alone our kids. We want our grandkids to be connected to this. And, and they say that for, you know, that there are, you live once, Chris, and you die twice. So I understand living once, but dying twice, how does that happen? The first time you die is when you stop breathing. But the second time you die is when people stop talking about you. 
and your name is no longer mentioned, you know, like how many of us know the names of our great grandparents or our great great grandma, right? So philanthropy is a way to make sure that you can continue to be alive even though you're not and to create those values for your family. And it's a beautiful thing to really get into because we've seen families that, you know, are having all sorts of challenges and the philanthropy is sort of what brings them back together again, or at least make sure that, you know, you've gone from success to significance and you, it wasn't all for naught. It was all not to create a bunch of spoiled, rotten kids, but it was actually create, you know, social change and bring goodness to the world. So long answer to your question, but hopefully that, that gives you some insights. Yeah, and I think you're right. And it, there's a fair bit of research that shows that uh, uh, developing and, and sustaining philanthropy in a family, deliberate creation of philanthropic structures and a philanthropic mindset um, actually promotes entrepreneurship inside families, uh, which of course any family business, any family really would, should support that as, as, a, as an option. And it, but it also creates leadership in, in families as well. Um, so, you know, I think that these are all positive outcomes. And, and, and I think that leads us nicely to the spot of uh, what is strategic philanthropy. So when you say strategic philanthropy, what do you mean by that? So strategic philanthropy is, is not just, you know, I want to give, you know, $10,000 to this charity, or I want to go ahead and, you know, um, give $100,000 here. Strategic philanthropy is realizing that your estate planning is made up of various sectors. You know, there's, there's the legal, there's the tax, right? There's your income needs, retirement needs, uh, uh, inheritance is that are going to happen. And then part of that, call it that, that pie is a philanthropic piece of that pie. And, and that's really about creating strategy. First of all, deciding, you know, what it is that you'd like to do, like, you know, what, what really sort of pushes your buttons or gets you excited? What sort of things? It could be your alma mater. It could be hospitals. It could be poverty. It could be indigenous rights, whatever the case might be. And now as you're structuring your estate, looking for efficient ways to build up that piece of the pie, right? To create either, it could be a private foundation, right? You could have your own private foundation, which you could set up either while you're alive or in a testamentary way. You know, it requires a few dollars to set up and then you have annual reporting fees, et cetera. But now you can have a, a bank over there to be able to distribute money in perpetuity to places or, or people or causes that you care about and that you want your children and grandchildren to be part of that board as well going forward. Or if you don't want to set up your own private foundation, you can set up a donor advised fund. And that's just piggybacking on either a community foundation like the Toronto Foundation, Vancouver Foundation, Jewish Foundation, or the banks also have uh, donor advised funds as well, where again, it's a parking lot to be able to have monies available in perpetuity to give away. Or it might be that you just want to create a large amount of money and not have something in perpetuity, but upon your death, it all gets distributed. And, and the beautiful part about that is, you know, that, that, that if you set it up properly, often can be funded the things were just 
that we're just going to be going to taxes. So it could have life insurance inside of that. It could have, uh, you know, be a beneficiary. Your foundation could be the, is the beneficiary of your registered money, right? It could right. be appreciated securities that are going into that. It could be cash, but it has to be part of your overall estate planning. So it's not a myopic thing. It's part of that. And that's, and the strategic part of it really is, you know, there are smart ways to create large amounts of money with small, with small dollars. And that's either by moving things around or by, in our case, you know, we use tax exempt life insurance to create very, very transformational gifts at small costs, either by using appreciated securities to fund those policies, using cash or using, you know, uh, a number of different, you know, sort of financial instruments, uh, flow through shares, just, but that, that's what I would call strategic, meaning that there's thought, there's really thought that goes into this. Well, and, and you mentioned also just to marry two concepts there, the thought and the purpose, developing, developing a pur purposeful plan that way is a process. Um, and insurance obviously is an important uh, uh, tool in that, in, in, in the, 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 the overall toolkit of planning to achieve those outcomes. And the thing with life insurance, and you've already mentioned this, is that uh, it doesn't get easier as you get older. So it's not something you want to leave to the last minute and hope to all wrap up. And by last minute, I mean in your later years, or you might not even get that opportunity if, if, if you die suddenly uh, and unexpectedly. Um, so it's really something that if, if it's in your mind that you want to start developing with someone like yourself, now, even if it's not something you do right now, it's something you start to talk about, understand what, what the options will be, what options will go away if you procrastinate. And you're someone who can help people with that conversation. Yeah, and, and you know, Chris, just to give you an example of something that we, that we were just involved with. So it was a, a couple of brothers who sold a business and ended up with a substantial amount of wealth, each of them, and, and they did an estate freeze, right? So, you know, fine and dandy there are a lot of people who have done estate freezes and now they've got these preferred shares and they've passed along the common shares to their kids right so right. that they are now taking the growth is going in their hands and at least now you've frozen your liability so a lot of people do not even realize that there's a bunch of post-mortem planning that could be done that would be very efficient for yourself and your family and create a lot of money for charity. So one of those is the donation of private company shares. So this particular family that we're working with, they have a, um, a tax bill upon their death of about $7 million, right? Not unusual if you get a big estate, you know, again, if you get worth a billion dollars, 7 million is like a rounding error, but you know, <laughs> seven, $7 million, let's say on, on a $30 million estate. So instead what we did was we donated private company shares. And what happened was we changed that estate from a $7 million tax bill to a $325,000 tax bill. We also created a $14 million gift to charity and utilizing some insurance, we were able to create a tax-free CDA or capital dividend account withdrawal of around $6 million for the children and the grandchildren. That was all done with planning. So imagine $7 million of tax to 300,000 to now a $14 million gift to charity and a tax-free $6 million uh, pullout 
by your children and grandchildren. That was called planning and that was all around creating some strategic philanthropy. Again, once you're philanthropic, it's just now a way of seeing how you can do it in a very tax efficient way. Now, you mentioned that um, we're entering a new and uh, uh, unprecedented era of global family wealth transfers and giving, and, and all of that's against a backdrop of rising, uh, generally rising family wealth. What are some of the risks that individuals and families need to prepare for now or can do now um, for risks that are going to accompany or be associated with that mass changing of wealth? Uh, good question. Well, the first thing is, you can't ignore it. <laughs> right. You know, there's, 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 there, there is a strategy and it's called just ignore it and put your, your head in the sand. Right. And, 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 and there are people like that. And there are people who say, you know what, listen, my kids are still going to get a lot. Right. Um, I'm not here to, you know, they'll deal with it. I won't be around. And that's a strategy and there's nothing wrong with that. But is it the smartest? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> and, then, and then to just add on to that, we have never been in such a challenging time. And certainly in, in my history, I've never experienced a, a global plague before. Right. And the reality is, is that the, the governments, as you know, as we're stuck here, sort of hunkered down, have also been printing out, you know, billions and billions of dollars of money. And, and that has to be paid back, or at least it has to be serviced. So what are the choices? We know. Look at the horizon ahead of us. The government's going to have to go after the one percenters. They already have. And it's crazy that in Canada, one percenter is considered somebody who's earning $220,000 a year, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so those one percenters are going to be taxed. And even if they tax the one percenters at 100%, it still wouldn't move the debt. So where are they going to go? You know, certainly they've talked about the capital gains taxes rising, right? From 50% to 75%. As far as I'm concerned, that's a fake, fake complete. It's going to happen. There yeah. could be a wealth tax. There could be an inheritance tax. There could be a tax on, on, on the sale of principal residences. Who knows what's going to happen? So really, what you're, in terms of your question, the risk is that somebody could be worth $100 million and be feeling very confident right? I've got a lot of money. But when they see that that $100 million is only going to be $60 million, now that should get their attention. And if there's some strategies that you can employ to use some money to preserve that $100 million, either for family or for charity, wouldn't that be something that they should look into? Yeah. And then, and then as far as the, the other risk is, we see how the world can change in a moment, which means just like my father, somebody can die, you know? And if you're single, widowed, or divorced, you've got a huge tax disposition that's gonna happen right away. Or if you're a family member, you know, uh, and you've got a wife, still things can happen suddenly, in which case all of those opportunities to do good for your family and preserve what you've built up and also create strategic philanthropy are also all for naught. So the time, as we say, to take care of this is now, but it, you know, it doesn't have to do, you don't have to do it all, but you have to start making those little tiny steps towards seeing what the opportunities are so that you can see what the responsibilities are for you and your family. Well, I, and, and to add to that, I think that we are in an era where at least for the rest of, probably the rest of my 
earning years and, and, and possibly sometime after that, interest rates are going to be low. I, I think we are in a probably in a, in a very long term period of low interest rates. And I think uh, and, and, and I, I would invite your comment on this, that uh, preserving capital and creating structures like trusts that can create income from that preserved capital is going to become more and more important uh, because, you know, you might have it in your family. My children are university aged. Uh, um, there are people that are coming out and may have to get three jobs to buy a place in Toronto. And, and I think income from, from um, preserved capital is going to become more and more important. It's going to be one of the pawns that families are going to rely on to maintain lifestyle and create opportunity for their next generation. So, so insurance the, yeah. is a great way to do that. Right. So you're, you're spot on, Chris. And that's probably one of the pushbacks that even wealthy families before Corona had in terms of creating strategic philanthropy is that, you know, charity begins at home. So they want to make sure that their kids and grandchildren are looked after, even though, again, there's something about helping them and disabling them. You don't want to give them too much, right? Mm-hmm. But you remember, Chris, you've heard of the, the, the advertising insurance company where from London Life, it was called Freedom 55 right? Yeah. Which was very aspirational. Today, Freedom 55 is when your youngest kid is 55. <laughs> and Chris, and Chris, it's, I, I, it's funny, but it's true. You were <laughs> coming out of school today, trying to find a job and you, you're saddled with, with perhaps university tuition debts, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to find a house in the, the GTA or if you're out in Vancouver, good luck. You're moving out to some small little community someplace. So, you know, being close to family, I think that people are going to be moving around far more. So, you know, I agree that, that these are things that have to be part of this overall planning. But yes, life insurance is one of those tools that can help preserve what you have and also pre- create that money for pennies for future dollars. And, and just on that, just think of any of your listeners who have either investment real estate or they've got a company uh, or they've got a very large appreciated securities portfolio, right? Again, on the second to die of a husband and wife, the government's going to have their handout and they want money. And that money, as I said, could be anywhere from 27% of any gains or you could have a holding company where they're going to want somewhere around 50% of that money. Or it could be that, you know, you've got uh, registered money that could be taxed at 54%. So how are they going to pay those taxes? Either your family is going to have the cash sitting around to pay, which, you know, if you're a good investor, you don't have that. You're investing your cash, right? The second thing they might do is your family might have to borrow money to pay the taxes. But where are they going to get you know, who's going to lend it to them. It's not deductible, the interest, and you have to pay it back. Or unfortunately, a lot of people are going to have to sell their prized assets, the family cottage, the building that you wanted to keep as a, as a cash cow, right? Or this other real estate. And and it is a good, is it going to be a good time to sell it? And will it be a fire sale? Or you can use tax exempt life insurance to provide the money, the liquidity that's going to be there in order to pay those taxes. And, and if you think it costs a lot of money, that's the other thing. People have to realize that there are ways of structuring insurance where it's either paid out of cash flow 
or you have it structured in such a way that you move other taxable assets around to now include insurance inside of your portfolio, or there are financing arrangements, uh, Chris, where you can actually finance the premiums using leveraged or immediate financing, where you could have your insurance that's there for your estate tax needs or even for charitable needs, and actually still have your money working for you in your business, or in your investments. And that's a, that's, that's a strategy that, again, that wealthy people who have tax problems and who have a healthy place to invest their money and have the ability to, to deduct interest and are comfortable with borrowing, that is definitely something that they should be giving attention to because it's a very powerful way of sort of having your cake and eating it too. Well, and I think what you're describing is, is there really is a mindset and a process that uh, uh, clients who are in these situations have to to come to terms with because these, you know, one way to look at, if, if you don't do any planning, you're looking at, I can do this and this, but not that. And what you're suggesting is that if we're doing this planning, it, we can do this and this and that. We can do our our philanthropic giving. We can make sure we have enough capital to provide for our family, the other the other charity. Uh, and uh, you know, there's still going to be a tax commitment there. We will achieve that as well. Um, and that that requires uh, a, a game plan, and that requires a holistic uh, viewpoint, and and that requires you to start earlier than later, before options fall off the table. Absolutely. Look at right now, you know, we're, we're doing, believe it or not, it's, it's very, very not uncommon that you have G1, let's say mom and dad who started the business, and now you've got G2 that's involved in the business, and then you've got G3, the, the, the grandchildren, right? We're doing lots and lots of planning on G2 and G3, because just remember, they're inheriting often, they're going to be the ones who are going to be the beneficiaries of all this wealth, which means that they themselves are going to have substantial tax obligations down the road. So when's the best time to take care of that? While they're young and while they're healthy, because it's very, it costs much less when they're younger, but also they're healthy enough that they can qualify for some of these insurance strategies that we're talking about. And that's just a way of putting them in a situation where they don't have to be 60 or 70, sitting down with an insurance professional and seeing what the cost of those premiums are at that time and maybe not being insurable. So, you know, we're, we, with the corona, something that's come up, and you and I talked about it earlier, is that the insurance companies have actually made it easier for Canadians to get insurance because uh, nurses or practitioners are not going out to see families to take blood and urine and, and, and check for vitals. So right now, Canadians can get up to $2 million of life insurance with no in-person meeting, no medical, no blood and urine, and it's all done by phone in about a 20-minute phone conversation where policies are issued within 72 hours largely. So we're seeing a real pickup. We've never been busier looking at these types of things for other building up or picking up somebody's existing insurance portfolio or maybe getting for the first time or putting insurance solutions on children or grandchildren. So again, it all comes down to one thing, planning and getting, giving it some attention. And, and your, your exam, and that's not going to go away. That, that horse is out of the barn now. So that will in some form, is going to stay, I would imagine, even when this, uh, or hopefully when this pandemic 
comes to its logical conclusion. Um, you mentioned the G1, G2, G3. I, I do some work in that space, and I'm glad you mentioned that because what is often forgotten, uh, you know, this is we're talking about estate planning and philanthropy here, but as you start to add multiple generations, those are, you know, if, if mom and dad had four kids and, and those four kids had four kids, we have a lot of people that have an interest uh, in varying degrees of interest in that business and your, um, your ability to manage the transition of that, of that wealth creating entity becomes exponentially more difficult uh, as each generation gets involved. And, you want to create as many options as you can. And so it's, it's, it's exciting to hear that you're working with a lot more G2 and G3 level because oftentimes that would be left off the table until after the estate freeze and, you know, way down the road. But I, I tend to view that as something that should be discussed as much as possible all at once and be a process in and of itself. Well, look at, I, look at in terms of some families we work with, and we work with some billionaire families as well, and, and, and regular civilians. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, wealth brings complexity, Chris. And we often see, you know, mom and dad are still very much in the picture, but, you know, the siblings are basically running the business. And they get along really well. You know what the challenge is? It's when they get married. And you've got one, one you got a, a son and two daughters, right, who are running the business. You know, son might be married and has, um, you know, a wife that likes $10,000 purses. You know, sister is running the business and is fortunate enough to have a nanny and her and her husband are both working, right? And sure. suddenly now there's this, again, this equal versus fair thing going on. And we've had situations where we've had people cry, you know, like there's been tears because the, the, what's, the reality is coming out, but you need a facilitator, somebody who's there to be able to have those meetings with each individual, to see what their expectations are, and then to have meetings with G1, to be able to present to them what G2 would really like to see happen, so G1 will give their blessing. But, you know, it, it, it's about creating a whole family values, that, that the family has to create a family guide, you know, in terms of how are things going to look, and that's no different than creating, let's say, a buy-sell agreement, a shareholders agreement. You need those types of things in place. But we feel that very much a part of this philanthropic conversation or the estate planning conversation comes to a point where there has to be enhanced communications in a family it, where there's no communication and let's face it there are some you know patriarchs who want nobody to know they don't want anyone to know about any of their stuff and the kids are frightened by that you know and they sort of control it but there has to be communication because if there's no communication what happens is conspiracy is created everyone thinks that there's conspiracy this one's god this one doesn't this and, and and it not only does it affect your family harmony but it affects your productivity and it affects the ability to actually do good as well around the philanthropy side as well so you know it, it seems very complex it really isn't there is a process and we have lots of intel that we can bring to people from other families so that really it makes it much much easier but Coming back to what we said before, Chris, it's a process, right? And it starts well, with starts with that first call. And I love that. That's that is a you know that that is a wonderful uh, uh, sort of and uh, uh, tie up that you did there. It, it really is. Um, 
estate planning, as I said, is not an event. And these negative things that can be created, you mentioned, you know, a failure to communicate. I, I used to joke with clients that too many people, G1, Generation 1, uh, the wealth creators often would, would live by the golden rule. And that was that whoever had the gold made the rules. And, and, and that's, that's, <laughs> that's how they had learned to communicate in their family. Um, and, and the problem is, is that those... Um, uh, those negative feelings that get created, that inability to communicate compromises the ability to do the really good things around philanthropy that the person might have wanted to do. So you, you, really, you really do have to work from the beginning on this to make sure that you can achieve those, those aspirational goals at the end. They, they are not disconnected. Uh, the, the, the whole thing is connected. You want a healthy ecosystem to, to, to achieve these goals, particularly philanthropic goals. Yeah. There's a, there has to be a congruence, right? Yeah. yeah and, and you know it. It's like, you know, sometimes we have in our stomach, you know, you've got that spidey sense. It's not you're doing something or something's happening that, that's not congruent with what happens on the inside. So it really is, it, it's, it's important that everybody is able in a safe environment to be able to express how they're feeling, what they want, you know, what, yeah. what are some of the challenges that they have and deal with it so that as adults, hopefully, you know, we can get over that and be able to move forward to be more productive. And we all have these, I, I call them incompletions, you know, <laughs> we all have these incompletions in our mind that sort of rent space and they, they actually take away our energy. And uh, there's, there's a wonderful feeling of freedom that comes from being able to get all that out and actually move forward. You talk about, um, uh, you did a talk last year uh, uh, from Moses Snymer, and you talked about new philanthropy. I I'm going to ask you what that is, but what was the old philanthropy, Mark? Let's start there. Yeah, uh, the old philanthropy is what we talked about before, you know, um, a check, cash, yeah. or a credit card, right? That's yeah. what we think about philanthropy. It's a transaction, very transactional and normally driven by an ask and hopefully it could be driven by a passion right but that's kind of the old way of doing it the new philanthropy really is taking advantage of the uh, laws that the cra has given and endorsed to allow us to be able to give charity in the most efficient way possible and there are a number of different ways and the saddest part is that most Canadians don't know what's available. Uh, I'll tell you, we, uh, one of the, I'm a trustee of the Jewish Foundation of Greater Toronto. I'm also the chair of the Professional Advisory Committee. And they have an event every spring called the Book of Life, where they represent or they, they, they honor and recognize 24 philanthropists in the community who have made substantial gifts to help perpetuate the community. Anyway, last year they had 24 people that they honored and six of those, Chris, were my clients. Fabulous. Yeah. And I can tell you, Chris, there's not a chance in France <laughs> that, that those people would have been recognized for their philanthropy had I not sat down with them and showed them how easy it was and how really almost by default they could be philanthropists. You know, I had a 
of, of cardiologists that I was working with. He was one of those people recognized as well. And we had done some analysis and, and it seemed that he had too much life insurance. I know I'm an insurance guy and basically it came out that he has no too much insurance. So he wanted to actually cancel the policy. And I said, Jonathan, instead of canceling the policy, you know, you have a professional corporation, et cetera. Why don't we donate that policy to charity? He was a charitable guy. Anyway, we made four different beneficiaries for that million dollar insurance policy. And one of them was South Lake Hospital Foundation. They, they produced a two page article with this picture called the, the cardiologist with heart. Right. <laughs> and then, and then, and, and then, and then the foundation recognized him in their book of life as being one of the community philanthropists. And I remember I called him up. I said, Jonathan, this article is fantastic. I said, where's my name exactly? I can't, I, I didn't see my name in that article, you know, cause <laughs> you know, he wouldn't have done this, you know, had he not known about it and you know clearly he's become an ambassador going forward so you know one of the questions you asked very early on why is it that sort of people don't really know about this strategic philanthropy so apparently the statistics come out chris that 87 percent of advisors say that they have the philanthropic conversation with their clients and then when they went ahead and, and did the research or the focus group on clients, only 13% of clients said that their advisors were having the philanthropic conversation. So what's the disconnect there? Like how could that be so vastly different? I would suggest that it's process. I would suggest that, 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 that when it comes to charity or being philanthropic, I've always packaged it, Chris, kind of in a sandwich. I look at the sandwiches, you know, sort of the two pieces of bread and the meat on the inside. So there's an emotional part, like those questions about three beneficiaries, right? Yeah. Then there's the technical stuff, right? Like how to do it. And then there has to be an emotional part as well at the back end to really wrap it up and make it like put that little bow on it. I would suggest that most advisors would probably say something. For instance, if you're a lawyer and you're writing the will, would you like to leave anything for charity? Yeah. So, you know, how, how, how exciting is that, right? They've done their job, but is it really gone deep for the client and really exposed them to opportunities and responsibilities of the advisors to be able to help them see those opportunities to create these legacies? You know, I, I've, I've had people cry when we've talked about philanthropic giving because they realize they've been so busy and so away from their families building up these, these wonderful, you know, dynasties, but they haven't created the, the legacy. They haven't created the significance of that. So, um, so there really is, uh, you know, I love your sandwich uh, metaphor because that you really, and I can't think of anything, you know, having, I traveled with my family to Italy a few years ago and um, there's, there's really nothing more emotional than bread. Uh, and <laughs> so I, I agree with man, you. One man does not live by bread alone, right? No, but it is but, good. It's worth a try. My, uh, and, um, my, wife, my wife makes homemade bread every Friday. Okay? Oh, so, fabulous. Yeah, yeah. That's why I get all lose 20 pounds. So go on. <laughs> we have a Portuguese bakery not far from Ah, uh, I smell it. And it's coming oh. from, my nostrils are smelling that right now. My you kids know? would never leave there if they didn't have to go to <laughs> university. <laughs> um, I think what you're describing, though, is, is – um, that metaphor really reinforces what you were talking about earlier is that there's a, 
there's a, a shift in mindset and, and it's, it's, it's acknowledging that emotion, like not starting with the meat. The meat is the technical part. Uh, that, that can be done. That's often the easiest part. Um, it's getting the emotion at the front end to say, I want to be a philanthropist. Yeah, you're and sweet. what does that mean? Yeah. You're spot yeah. on. You know, it, it, it's like, it's like the tail, it's like the tail leading the dog. The tail to me is the tax. That's, that's easy. Like, you know, you can, you know, the tax stuff is really easy, but the, the, the head is really about really what's not so much in the head, but what's in the heart. Yeah. What's important to you? What are you passionate about? You know, most, I think it's around 65% of all donations to charities are driven by passion, not by tax. But now if you have the passion and then you can bring in the tax, wow, you can create something substantial, even more than you were possibly doing before, because now it's no longer about writing a check. It's just finding the money yeah. with often things that you were just going to be giving to the CRA anyway. So, you know, it's what a great thing that really just reinforces what you're doing, but it comes from those conversations. So I think that should answer to you why, you know, people are not, doing this because I don't know, as you can see, Chris, I have a little bit of enthusiasm around you this, do. you know, and, 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 and I really believe, you know, that there's a, it sort of comes right back to the very beginning of our conversation, you know, however much longer you want to go with that, that's fine. But, you know, I, I heard a, a gentleman by the name of Peter Gilgan, you know, Peter Gilgan is the, uh, the, the owner of Madame Homes. Yeah, tremendous, oh, yeah. tremendous charitable person. He gave a hundred million dollars last year to Sick Kids Hospital with their whole rebuild. I'm I'm on the Sick Kids Professional Advisory Board, and you know we're raising like you know 1.2 billion dollars for for that rebuild. But you know he's a father. He has six kids, and he said something very profound to me. Yeah, I was at a, a, an event for a Western uh, Business School, Ivy, that was, he was being honored at. He said, for the first 10 years, do anything. But for the next 30 years, only do what you love. And I, I thought it was a very profound way of, you know, we start off our careers and you sort of do everything and you're, you're throwing, throwing things on the wall here and that. And you're sort of just getting your feet wet and figuring yourself out. But once you tap into something that you really love, you know, they say that you never have to work a day in your life. And, and most of the things I do, uh, Chris, I don't get paid for. You know, if I can create money for charity and I've made nothing, I feel fantastic as if I've just had, I've, I've just won the lottery. You know, I just did a gift last week for $2.1 million of some insurance policies, two insurance policies of some clients that no longer needed those policies. So they wanted to cancel them. Instead, they're donating them to charity that I arranged. And the charity is going to be paying the premiums going forward. At the end of the day, the charity is going to be out of pocket over the course of, let's say, the next 20 years, about $270,000 of cost in order to have $2.1 million of charity coming to that organization. What an incredible win. What an incredible, you know, future bond or portfolio that you can have. And I created that. I didn't get paid for it, but I feel great doing it. So that's when you, when you tap into something you love, you know, people know that you love it and they sense it and you're enthusiastic about it. And my job is really to try to inspire more people, not just donors, but professionals as well. 
Well, let's, let's, and I think that's fabulous. I mean, you're definitely, the, the beauty of the work you do in this space and is that you're always on the side of the angels uh, because you're, you're trying to help, uh, you're trying to, to, to help things that are manifestly good. If somebody's listening, and they and and people do listen. Uh, somebody's listening. You mean you mean it's not going to be one of those like light bulbs going in the in the middle of the room, rocking back and forth with the cockroach? That is you know, not that, what happens. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. I want to make sure that we we used our time wisely. Good. We are building up a very good following with this podcast. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. <laughs> and it's people like you that help me achieve that. If somebody is listening and they want to uh, begin uh, and start to build philanthropy into their estate planning or into their family business succession planning, what are, and, and I like to finish our interviews uh, on this sort of type of question, what are one or two things that you might recommend to them should be the next things if they've done nothing other than think about it and say, okay, I'm kind of ready for whatever this might be. What, what, um, what are two things that you could recommend to them that they could go do soon or very soon uh, and, and begin to feel they're making a positive impact on this road to, to being a philanthropist? Okay, the first thing, that's a great question. The first thing I would suggest is people should watch my TED Talk. Okay. I did a TED Talk at, for Moses Neimer's Idea City last year. It was the 20th anniversary. And actually, Moses Neimer is a client of mine. And I, the reason I can say that you know, publicly is because when you watch the TED Talk, he introduces me and talks about how him and I met and how I helped him around his planning and his philanthropy, et cetera. And, and I think it's a great way to frame in 20 minutes, like, that whole conversation around planning versus investing and the tax and a whole, you know, probably about half a dozen specific strategies that people can consider. We had 700 people at Kroner Hall when I gave that. And, you know, there were some very substantial people there who were very intelligent who came up to me and said, hey, nobody's told me this before. Nobody's, so I think it would be a very, really great way to sort of frame the conversation. That would be a great thing. And the second thing is, is if they are interested, we, you know, reach out to us. Like I said, our tax letter digest, uh, we, ha we I write for the investors digest as well. And I'm happy to share with them, you know, uh, articles we've written on, let's say, the ROI of philanthropy right? Um, or, you know, how to create, uh, you know, a no limit um, TFSA for your family, right? Again, just take all the money that you would have been giving a tax and use that for charity. We, I'm happy if they reach out to me, Mark at wealthinsurance.com. I'm happy to send them those articles that are specific around philanthropy for them just to get a framework of what other people are doing as well. And then really just reach out to, uh, I would suggest, uh, the, a great resource is the community foundations. If you live in Toronto, the Toronto Foundation, some great people there, Neil Gokel, Sharon Avery, they've got an amazing ability to help people create this, this sort of uh, structure to, to, to do the strategic philanthropy in. Uh, you can reach out to the Oakville Foundation, the Berry Foundation, the Jewish Foundation, and they've got professionals there that are working full-time to help people create this sort of strategic philanthropy for your family. So really learn about it, you know, make the call, but don't ignore it because there's I, just too much too much riding on the line here and and 
and, and you know imagine somebody you know working so hard for 80 90 years and missing the boat you know it's it really is it would be very sad in my mind well and i think that is you know to to button that up your other you previously said that people need to get started don't ignore it because it 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 uh in terms of opportunity generation time is not really your friend uh and and you want to make sure that you have process to achieve your philanthropic goals created early enough to maximize all of your objectives i i will put all of the links to your uh, i believe it's on youtube the ted talk to, uh, that you did for idea yep. city mm-hmm. um i'll also put the link to your uh, page when when i asked you to be a guest on the show uh, and we were sort of throwing topic ideas around you you said well here's a few and i, I think i got 25 documents it was amazing and overwhelming at the same time and i thought well let's stay on the strategic philanthropy because i really like that so you're a tremendous sharer of knowledge as well which i think we've experienced today on the show and i'm glad you mentioned community foundations as well because um i would imagine in these these difficult times with with the pandemic they're also going to be organizations that would really uh appreciate people pay attention because some communities are really going to be hurting uh, as, as a that, result of- it's such a good point you know just to, to add on that you know that apparently they say due to corona there's going to be a, a dial down of somewhere between nine and fifteen billion dollars of money that has been going to charity that will not be and and the nonprofit space i don't know if you know this chris but it it, it's in the top five of employers in canada right so so it's been not only is of the facilities to to take in those donations and create it sort of been decimated you know and people out of work there's never been a greater need in our community for the services that are not going to be funded so you know while people are doing their wills and while people are looking at their estate freeze and they're looking at their you know their uh, their insurance and their taxes and all of that they should really be looking at you know how can i really step up at this time because it's really how we're dealing with this difficult time in terms of our humanness and the humanity that we have that really is going to be the telltale sign of you know the life that you led and um, those community foundations they're fantastic and uh, i highly recommend that all advisors connect with your community foundation see how you can partner with them and uh, certainly wealthy canadians and donors should be looking at that as well well, I don't think there's any better point to finish off on than, than that. Mark, thank you so much for taking so much time to spend with us today. And thank you for your wisdom and for the generosity of the, the, the ideas that you have and the passion that you bring to this. I, as I mentioned, I will share all those links on the show notes and, uh, and we will tweet this and post this on LinkedIn so that people can uh, uh, connect with you and, and start to get some great ideas about how to be a a philanthropist. I agree with you 100%. It, it's probably never been more important than it than it is today. So if you're thinking of being a philanthropist and you're not sure what that means, uh, now is a very good time to, to, to head down that path. So Mark, thank you very much for, for everything you shared with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. I, I, I really had a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, your questions were great. The format was wonderful. And hopefully I didn't talk too much. And hopefully people did gather some you know, information that they can use. And uh, I really do appreciate the invitation today.
Thanks to our guest this week, Mark Halpern. Links to his Idea City Talk and contact information are provided on the show notes for this week's episode. If you have a show idea, please contact me using the contact information on the show notes. Thanks to everyone that's been suggesting great authors, speakers, and thought leaders for our show. We're building a terrific inventory of content, and the episodes ahead are very exciting. Join us next week for guest Howard Johnson, a managing director of Duff & Phelps. Howard is a mergers and acquisitions specialist. He will be discussing the state of play for M&A activity given the pandemic and some important considerations for business owners looking to take their business to market. You won't want to miss this episode. See you next week on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast.